All right, so as Keith said, today is the final Sunday in our early years sermon series uh, where we've been looking at the events in the Bible from Jesus' early life. There's four of them. And this one is a particularly interesting one because it's the only one where Jesus actually does or says anything. Uh, You may have noticed that in all the first three events, Jesus is an infant, most likely pre-verbal. But in this one, he's 12 years old, and his action really forms the center of the story. And that action leads to conflict with his parents. So yes, that's right, not even Jesus could make it through youth without conflict with his parents. Uh, So if you want to follow along in your own Bible, turn to Luke chapter 2 starting in verse 41. Luke 2, verse 41. Every year, his parents went to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the feast, according to the custom. After the feast was over, while his parents were returning home, The boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me? He asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. Then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart, and Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. So I'm not a parent, but I'm sure that one of the most terrifying experiences you can have as a parent is not knowing where your child is. Uh, my mom has never forgotten that when I was, in two, I was two years old and we were at the mall, And she just looked in one direction a little bit too long. And when she looked back, I was gone. And uh, so she started to frantically ask people, have you seen a two-year-old without an adult? And everyone just kept saying, no, sorry, no, sorry. And she grew more and more frantic until finally she found me. I was uh, looking at the department store Santa, um, you know, that holds the kids. And which is impressive because that Santa Claus was not within eyeshot of us wherever we were, um, but somehow it was like I had a homing device for Santa. (laughs) Jesus had a homing device for the temple, so clearly he had holier priorities than me. (laughs) Uh, But my mom has never forgotten that experience because it was terrifying. Losing track of a child is the kind of experience that I would say gives rise to what I call the unholy trinity of emotions, uh, which are fear, anger, and shame. So fear, because you have no idea if your child's okay, right? Uh, Anger, because they may have wandered off when they really should have known better. 
uh, and shame because you feel like, oh, I just wasn't vigilant enough. And I feel quite confident that Mary and Joseph experienced all three of those emotions. Uh, the passage tells us very clearly that they experienced fear, right? When they find Jesus, Mary says that they have been anxiously searching for him, anxiously searching. I looked up that word that gets translated as anxiously in the Greek, and it means to be tormented. So Mary's saying, we have been in torment looking for you. So they were filled with fear. And then, of course, you can also hear the anger in her words, right? Son, why have you treated us like this? What's wrong with you? And as for that third terrible emotion, shame, uh, we're not clearly told that they experienced that, but I think we can be pretty confident that that was part of what they were going through. I mean, they didn't even realize that Jesus wasn't with them until after a full day of traveling. So I'm sure they thought, how could we not check to make sure before a full day of traveling went by? I'm reminded of that scene in Home Alone where, you know, Kevin's mom suddenly realizes that he's not on the plane and she just keeps saying, what kind of mother am I? Because she just can't get over the fact that they went from the house to the van to the airport to the plane and she never checked to make sure that her son was there. And I imagine Mary was thinking a similar thing. What kind of mother am I? How could we go from the feast you know, to the caravan, to a full day's worth of traveling, and I never checked to make sure, what kind of mother am I? And you might be thinking, yeah, what kind of mother are you? 12-year-old, you know, you don't even check for a whole day. Well, if we understand the traveling circumstances of that time, it's not too hard to believe that something like this could happen. Uh, in those days, when people would make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem for a feast like this, they'd all be coming from the same town, and they would all travel together. And we know from the passage that the caravan that Mary and Joseph were traveling in included their friends and relatives. Um, and we know that because the distance between Jerusalem and Nazareth was a three-day trip. And so it tells us they had been traveling for one day, right? Which means that... They're only a third of the way home, and that's when they realize that they don't have Jesus. And then we're told that the first thing that, that they do is they go and ask relatives and friends. So those relatives and friends, they're not in Jerusalem, they're not in Nazareth, they're not calling them up on the phone, they're in the caravan with them. So most, most likely what happened is that when the caravan was leaving, everyone's going together from Jerusalem, and Mary and Joseph just probably assumed that he was with his cousins or his aunts and aunts or um, his, <laughs> his aunts and aunts, his aunts and uncles or, or something like that, you know? Uh, it, would be, it would not be hard to, to imagine that this, this could happen, right? Um, but I still can't help but think that Mary and Joseph would really be kicking themselves, right? I can think of uh, what might be going through Mary's mind. God entrusted this holy child to us. We protected him for 12 years. We fled into Egypt in order to make sure that he stayed alive when Herod wanted to kill him. And what if that's all for nothing? What if some bandits found him on the road? You know, what if he's just lying in the desert? What if he got kidnapped? What if I ruined God's plan because of my negligence? 
So it must have been a very scary, very shame-filled three days while they were searching for Jesus. Parents, if your child has ever gone missing under your watch, this story should be comforting to you. (laughs) Because apparently, even two parents who have been chosen by God to look after a perfect kid can lose track of him, right? So how much more so good parents who have imperfect kids. But anyway, Mary and Joseph, they eventually find Jesus, and he's in the temple discussing the law with the teachers of the law. And he seems surprised that they've been looking for him. And I'm not going to get into all my theories here about how this works, but I actually think he's genuinely surprised that they've been looking for him. I don't think he's being sarcastic when he says, why were you searching for me? Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? Now, in the mouth of an ordinary 12-year-old, those words would be pretty dishonoring, right? I mean, parents, okay, if your kid disappeared for three days without telling you, you anxiously search for them, you find them, and then the first thing they say is, why were you searching for me? Is that going to go over well? I don't think so. I think even parents firmly opposed to corporal punishment might rethink their position under those circumstances. But Jesus is not an ordinary 12-year-old. And that is really what the point of this whole story is. Jesus is not an ordinary 12-year-old. This is not a story about how we can all live a better life. It's not a story about how to treat your parents or or how parents should treat their kids. It's, It's not about any of that. The reason this story has been given to us is to show us how unique, how special, how different Jesus is, and how he's sometimes confusing, too, and does things that we don't expect. And I think the most important thing this story teaches us about how Jesus is different is that at the age of 12, Jesus recognized that God is his true father. God is his true father. Mary says to Jesus, Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Your father and I. But then Jesus answers, I needed to be in my father's house. See, Jesus knows that his true father is not Joseph. Now, that doesn't mean that he doesn't love Joseph. It doesn't mean that he doesn't respect Joseph. But at 12 years old, Jesus knows that his true father is heavenly. Now, you might think, well, does that really make Jesus that different? I mean, isn't God everybody's father, really, in a sense? Maybe Jesus is just very precocious spiritually. You know, he gets it at a very young age. Oh, yeah, we're all children of God. Isn't that what's going on here? Well, you know, there is a sense in which we're all children of God because we all ultimately find our origin in God. We've all been created by God. So in a sense, yeah, that's true. But Jesus isn't talking about God in this general sense of of being creator here. You know, if he was, he would have said, I needed to be in our Father's house. I mean, 
God is just as much the creator of Mary and Joseph as of Jesus, right? But he doesn't say our father. He stresses the personal nature of his relationship to God. He says, my father's house. I've heard that in Jesus' day, it was not unusual for people to think of God as being father of the nation of Israel. And there's a lot of evidence for that throughout the Old Testament. People talk about God as being the father of Israel. But it was unusual for individuals to talk about God in that way. My father. You know, it's kind of like for Americans today, it wouldn't be strange for us to say that George Washington is a father or the father of our country. But you would think someone was pretty weird if they said, George Washington's my father, right? You would think that what they meant was that they were a literal descendant of George Washington, right? And it was similar in Israel when talking about God as father. But yet, here's 12-year-old Jesus just matter-of-factly saying, my father. I needed to be in my father's house. Some translations actually say, uh, I needed to be about my father's business. I like that. That sounds especially funny to imagine a 12-year-old saying that. I needed to be about my father's business. And I actually think that's kind of the more accurate translation. But... Um, I needed to be about my father's business. Israelites didn't talk like that. Religious leaders didn't talk like that. And 12-year-olds definitely didn't talk like that. But Jesus talked like that. Jesus' relationship with God was different, unique, exceptional. And of course, we also see that revealed here in what he's been doing at the temple, right? He has been teaching the teachers. At 12 years old, he's engaging with men who have spent their lives studying the law, and he is astonishing them. He's amazing them. How can that be? It's because Jesus' relationship to God isn't like any other human being. It's different. Now, how do we describe that relationship that Jesus has to God? Well, the way we need to understand it is through understanding or at least recognizing this idea uh, that God is a trinity. Uh, We talked about this idea about two months ago in our Advent series, uh, and you might be thinking, okay, well, why are we already talking about it again? Well, I feel led to say a lot of the same things that I said two months ago again for several reasons. One, because this is a hard concept to grasp. In fact, you can never completely grasp it. To some extent, it is a holy mystery that we just kind of have to bow before in worship, okay? But I also want to talk about it again because this idea is really, it's an idea that is at the the core of the Christian faith. It is one of the central things that we affirm about God as Christians. And if we don't talk about this idea, it just, we lose it, okay? So I think we, as part of our worship, we kind of have a responsibility to strain our intellects a little bit and, and to try and grasp on uh, to this aspect of who God is. So let's talk a little bit about Trinity. If we look at the whole of Scripture, it reveals that God is a Trinity. This is what we as St. Paul's affirm in our statement of faith. Uh, this is what the Christian church has historically affirmed about God. And what that means is that God has always been, for all of eternity, a perfect relationship of three persons. 
that we call God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Each of these three persons is fully God. Each one possesses the same essence, the same character. Now, some people, especially Muslims and Jews, at this point will say, you, you don't believe in one God. You believe in three gods. And it's not hard to understand why they would think that, right? But the Christian response, the Orthodox Christian response to that is, no, we believe in one God. We believe in one God. Now, how can that be? Well, again, there is a mystery here. But something that is helpful for me in understanding how God can be one and three at the same time is to ask myself the question, what do we really mean when we say that God is one? What does it mean for God to be one? Because normally, when we think of something being one, we're thinking about a physical chunk of stuff, right? Um, this is one iPhone. Why is it not two iPhones or three iPhones? Because it's a physical chunk of stuff, chunk of matter that has distinct boundaries that's separate from its surroundings, right? But is God a physical chunk of stuff? No. I mean, and that's something that uh, Jews and Muslims and Christians can all agree on, that God is spirit. So the oneness that God has has to be a oneness, a spiritual oneness, not a physical oneness. You see what I mean? And when we think of God's oneness in that way, it becomes a little easier to conceptualize how God can be a one, but also be a perfect relationship of three persons. It is a relationship that is so perfect, so, so loving, that it can, it can genuinely be called one, one will, one character, one essence. And I think this is just such a beautiful idea. It's a beautiful holy mystery because it tells us that God's eternal nature is love. He is within himself, love. It is, it is the love within the Trinity between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit that overflows to create the world. This, this love, this eternal dance of joyful giving between the three persons in the Godhead. That is the source of all creation. And what we believe that the Bible reveals, what Christians throughout history have believed that the Bible reveals, is that one of those three persons, God the Son, humbled himself radically, took on human flesh, became a human being. And he became the person that we now know as Jesus Christ. Uh, Philippians chapter 2 tells us this really clearly. Uh, it says that Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. So God the Son let go of his divine privileges, humbled himself, so he could take on the likeness of humanity. So Jesus is fully God. He is in very nature God, same character, same essence, but he is also fully human. And how, how that can happen is a, is, a, is a mystery that strains human comprehension. Um, he is fully human in the sense that he has a physical body and he exists in a particular time and place and he's subject to certain human limitations. 
But he's also fully God because his essence, his character, his will is one with God. And even though he is a human being, he remains in perfect relationship with God the Father and God the Son. That's key. He remains in that perfect relationship that has existed from all eternity, perfect relationship with the Father and with the Holy Spirit, even as he embodies human flesh. And that's why Jesus calls God my Father. My Father. That's why he knows he has to go to his Father's house and be about his Father's business. That's why he has more knowledge than the teachers of the law, even at 12 years old. And that's why his relationship to God is fundamentally different than any other human being who has ever lived. I know this stuff can be confusing. And what I want us to see is that it was confusing for Mary and Joseph too, right? Right after Jesus says this, what does it say in verse 50? They did not understand what he was saying to them. It's confusing. They couldn't get it yet, even though... (laughs) even though angels had visited them before Jesus was born, even though uh, they knew that his conception was virginal, right? They still didn't totally get it when he talked about my father. I had to be about my father's business. And people still struggle to get it today. But what Jesus expresses here is this idea that is at the heart of our faith, that Jesus is the Son of God. He's not just a prophet. He's not just a really good example of how to live a good human life. Uh, He is God in the flesh. He is the essence of God in human form, living in perfect relationship with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. Now, there's something else that I want us to recognize in this story, something that I think is, is really neat, which is that this story has what I would call divine foreshadowing. We know what foreshadowing is in a, in a novel or in a movie, right? It's, it's something that hints at what's to come. And this story hints at what's to come. The feast that Jesus and his parents go to is the feast of the Passover. And what was celebrated at that feast was something that pointed to what Jesus would one day do. Um, Just in case you don't know the story, Passover refers to when Israel was in slavery in Egypt. And there was this specific event where they were spared the events of a plague. A plague struck Egypt where the firstborn sons in every household died. But God told the Israelites, if you put the blood of a lamb over the doorpost in your house, you will be passed over. The effects of this plague will not strike you. So that's what happened. The Israelites put the blood of the lamb on the doorposts and their children were spared. Now, today we recognize that Jesus is the ultimate Passover lamb. In fact, when John the Baptist first sees him, John the Baptist says, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Because like the Passover lamb, Jesus' sacrifice spares us from death. When we trust in his sacrifice on the cross, it's like we're putting his blood on the doorpost of our lives. And that saves us from sin and death and the devil. Jesus is the ultimate Passover lamb. And in this story, the ultimate Passover lamb is going to celebrate and remember the Passover that foreshadows him.
kind of a mind-boggling thought, isn't it? The ultimate Passover lamb is going to celebrate and remember the Passover that foreshadows him. And when he does that, what happens? He disappears for three days. And his mother is distraught. And this happens, why? Because he has to attend to his father's business. I don't think it's an accident that that's awfully similar to what's going to happen about 20 years from now. Because about 20 years after this incident, Jesus is going to be in Jerusalem again. And it's going to be right around Passover. And he's going to have a Passover meal with his disciples. And he's going to hold up bread and he's going to say, this is my body given for you. And he's going to hold up the cup of wine and say, this is the new covenant in my blood. In other words, what he will be doing is he will be identifying himself as the ultimate Passover lamb at the celebration of Passover. And then he will be crucified. And what will happen? He'll go missing for three days. And his mother will mourn. And he'll be gone. Why? Because he has to be about his father's business. His father's business of saving creation from the power of sin and death. And people who love Jesus will think he's been lost, but three days later, he'll return. And people will be astonished and amazed, and they won't fully understand what just happened, just like in this story. But we know now, we understand, God the Son became our Passover lamb. He took on flesh and then offered that life so that the consequences of sin and death might pass over us and land on him. So my hope and prayer this morning is that those of us who who know this truth, we would be in awe of it all over again. And we'd see how scripture foreshadows and points to this and culminates in this. And that we'd be moved to worship and thanks. And for any of us who still don't understand, I pray that we begin to be able to see Jesus' relationship with God is like no one else. And so it's through knowing him that we know God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray that we would be able to see that when you came, uh, you revealed uh, how exceptional uh, you are, that Uh, We can look at Jesus and know that he is not just a prophet. He is not just uh, an example to us, but he he is you in human flesh, Lord. I pray that uh, we would be in awe and wonder of that. Lord, thank you for being our Passover lamb. Thank you for, uh, for rescuing us, for offering yourself so that we might be spared the effects of sin and death and the devil. Lord, I pray if there are any of us here who haven't received, uh, received that, haven't, uh, metaphorically speaking, put the blood, your blood, on the doorpost of our lives, Lord, I pray uh, that we would feel your call this morning to do that and to put our trust in you. We give you thanks, and in Jesus' name, amen.